Hey, I'm glad you're joining us this weekend and hope you're doing well. Uh, it's an exciting weekend here at the Norton Campus Grace Church. Uh, this particular weekend, we're opening up our little power kids, our nurseries opening up. So we're looking forward to seeing a lot of families. And so if you weren't aware of that, I want to let you know that. Uh, if you've been waiting for that, it happens this weekend. Uh, we also had our Fall Festival on Wheels. Uh, that happened on Saturday, and so it's going to be, uh, that was a lot of fun. Uh, and depending on when you're watching this, okay, I don't know when you might be watching this, but if you're watching it Saturday night, there's a big football game going on. My team against the Ohio State Buckeyes, right? And so uh, depending on when you're watching this, uh, I want you to pray for me if you're watching it Saturday night. If it's Sunday morning, I want you to be nice to me, be gracious to me, right? But I'm glad you're here. We're, we're in an interesting conversation. And uh, as I was thinking about the conversation that we're having in this book, I was thinking about a conversation I had with my friend Samuel. Uh, some of you have heard me talk about Pastor Samuel. Pastor's a church in Akron. He's a black pastor of church. He and I are friends. And I was over there doing a teaching with him. And he was telling me, he says, hey, uh, Pastor Dan, he said, uh, tomorrow I have a service I got to do. I said, well, tell me about it. He said, it's a home-going service. And I looked at him and I said, what do you mean a home-going service? And uh, he began to explain to me that one of the people in their church who was a follower of Jesus had died. And they were going to do the funeral service for that person. And he said, we like to call it a home-going service. And I love that, right? Because that represents the fact that the Bible, over and over again, says that followers of Christ are like exiles, right? This is not our permanent home. And that's why we're studying this ancient book, this ancient book uh, called Daniel. Because this ancient book called Daniel is about real people who at a real time were really taken into exile by a real group of people named the Babylonians, right? And it really zeroes in on four of those individuals, Daniel and he had three friends, right? Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And as you begin to look at this book of Daniel, you see, you begin to look at their life and you see how they lived as engaged exiles, right? In a culture that was different. They didn't isolate, but they lived as engaged exiles, not conforming to the culture, but engaging with it in a way to have influence. And so we said this book is so valuable for us that as followers of Christ, we're exiles. That's what we are. And this book helps us understand how can we live as engaged exiles without conforming to the culture, not isolating from culture, but having influence in it. And so we've been taking a look at this book and it's been fun. And so where we find ourselves today, if you have a Bible, you want to open it to Daniel, go to chapter three, because this is a really familiar story in the book of Daniel. Many of you maybe have heard it or you've heard it referred to, right? Some of you, Daniel three is about the fiery furnace and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. Some of you, maybe you grew up in church and you saw this on the flannel graph, right? If you're sitting there in your living room, raise your hand if that's you, right? So you saw it on the flannel graph. It's so cool. It's like an awesome story for kids, right? And you remember the teacher kind of putting those figures up there. I remember learning it this way and I remember they had to teach us how to say these names and the way that they taught me to remember the names of these three guys was this, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's hard for me as a kid. So the way my teacher taught me was this, shake the bed, make the bed, and to bed we go, right? Anybody else learn it that way? Yeah, easy way to remember, right? Some of you are like, man, that's too old. You don't remember that. But you remember the VeggieTales version of this, right? Raise your hand if that's you, right? 
You remember it, right? And it was it was this VeggieTales version of this story. And these three guys, they're Rack, Shaq, and Benny, right? Love it, right? And, and, and the king built not a golden image, but it was the bunny, right? And there's the, the bunny, the bunny, that song going on, right? And some of you remember, and it's an incredible story. Love to tell our kids this, but listen to me. I want to tell you something. This story in Daniel 3 is not simply a kid's story. In fact, I would suggest this, the familiarity of this story can be a barrier to us seeing the potency and the power and even the provocative nature of this story in Daniel 3. I wanna look at it and then here's what I wanna do. We're gonna read the whole story and we'll make some comments and then there's three implications for us. Three implications today. Let's look at the story. Daniel chapter three, Beginning in verse 1, this is about two or three years after Daniel 2, what Pastor Aiden let us in. Here's what it says. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high, 6 cubits wide, and he set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Here's what I want you, it just was a big image overlaid with gold. It was 90 feet high, it was 9 feet wide, it was visible. You could have seen this thing from 12 to 15 miles away. One commentator said this, this image was valuable, overlaid with gold. It was vast, it was 90 feet high, nine feet wide, and it was visible. You could see it from about 15 miles away. He, the king then, verse two, summoned, this is fun, the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the advisors, the treasurers, the, the judges, the magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he set up. This is like the who's who of Babylon, right? This is like the cabinet, the Congress, right? The judges, the governors, the mayors. And so the who's who of Babylon, verse three, right? Let's just kind of shorten it and say it that way. They assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Now, what was this image? We're gonna talk about this in a minute, but this image, a lot of people had kind of, what was he doing? Some people say maybe it was an image of Nebuchadnezzar, and it may be, but I think there's actually a lot more material that would point to this was either an image that pointed to Babylonian national pride, or it was an image that pointed to the Babylonian gods. Whatever the case, Nebuchadnezzar sets this image up and he calls the who's who of Babylon. And they're standing before the image. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, it says, nations and people of every language, this is what you're commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of, this is fun, the horn, the flute, the zither. I've asked Pastor Aiden, can you get that in the band somewhere, right? The lyre, the harp, the pipe, and all kinds of music. It's a Babylonian orchestra. You must fall down and worship the image of gold that Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar, has set up. And whoever doesn't fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man on the planet at this time, conquered people and nations. For him, power and rule was not enough. Now he wanted worship. And do you see what he does? Do you see what he does? It's interesting to me. He wants people to bow to this image, which represents something, and he plays music to charm and inspire them. Not only that, but he mandates mass conformity to pressure them. And just in case those two things don't work, you know what he does? He has a fire crackling in the background just to threaten them. 
All of a sudden what happens, verse 7, was this, Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the Babylonian orchestra, all the peoples and nations of every language fell down, mass conformity, and worshipped the image of gold the king had set up. Verse 8, At this time, this is interesting, some astrologers came forward and they denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, may the king live forever. That was kind of their way of brown-nosing. That's what you say, right, when you walk in. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the Babylonian orchestra, let's just say it that way, must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever doesn't fall down and worship will be thrown, and they point to the stoked fire in the background, into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon. You detect a little bit of jealousy going on? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Rack, Shack, and Benny. That's how we're going to say them, right? Who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you've set up. All of a sudden, jealousy. These guys come in and say, hey, those guys. I know you didn't know this, Nebuchadnezzar, but those guys, they're not doing what you had commanded be done. Verse 13, Nebuchadnezzar then is furious with rage. He summons Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I've set up? He asked him a question. What's interesting is he doesn't give him a chance to answer it. That's funny to me. He asks the question and then he says, verse 15, now when you hear the sound of the Babylonian orchestra, if you are ready, like I'm gonna give you a chance here, if you're ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good, everything's good. But if you do not worship it, you'll be thrown immediately, you hear that fire crackling back there? Into a blazing furnace. Then he says something interesting. It's full, it's full of interesting connotation. He says, then what God? What God is there who will be able to rescue you from my hand? He says, I'm in control. He said, what God is there that exists that would be more powerful than me that could rescue you from what I want to do? It's interesting. Kind of gives us a little insight into Nebuchadnezzar, right? Story goes on. Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Rakshak and Benny, right? They reply to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. Stop. I love their calm demeanor. They weren't marching. They weren't protesting. There's nothing that says they were marching around the image. They take this image down. There was no hashtag never nebby. There was no Facebook posting going on. There's none of that happening, right? They have this calm demeanor. And here's what they say. King, we don't have to be defensive. Nor do we have to be offensive. Right? But they just took a wait and see approach. Because look what they said. If, this is powerful. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace... The God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he doesn't, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods 
or worship the image of gold you've set up. They basically say our God can deliver us from that fire. He will, at minimum, deliver us from your hand. And even if we don't get delivered from this fire, we are going to trust his providential plan for us because that's the God we serve. And here's what's interesting. Nebuchadnezzar, verse 19, was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And his attitude toward them changed. He ordered that the furnace be heated seven times hotter than usual. I'm not sure how smart that was. Like, fire's fire, right? It's going to burn. He said, let's turn that thing up, right? So let's turn it up. And he commanded, so he gets some of his strongest soldiers in his army. Tie these guys up. Throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace that was turned up seven times hotter. Look what it says. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of fire killed the soldiers who took Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. The furnace is so hot, the strong soldiers that took them over there, they end up dying. So what you have is Shaq, Rack, and Benny, all of a sudden they're in the fire. The soldiers outside the furnace, they're dead. But Nebuchadnezzar is watching this thing. Because verse 24 says, King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement. And he gathers his advisors and says, Hey, uh, guys, weren't there three men that were tied up and thrown into the fire? Can you imagine this? Put yourself in Nebuchadnezzar's shoes. And they said, well, yeah, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, he's got some vantage point here. He's looking into the furnace and says, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound, unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. The Hebrew word there is like, he looks like a spiritual deity is what he's saying. That's what he's saying. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. I got a confession to make. These guys are way better than me. <laughs> I would have been tempted if I was them to look at him and say, now nah, why don't you come in here, <laughs> right? That's what I'd have been tempted to do. But he's like, Come out here. That thing's turned up seven times hotter. Here's what it says. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. And the who's who of Babylon crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was the hair of their head singed. Their robes weren't scorched. There was not even the smell of fire on. You couldn't even tell that they'd been to a weenie roast, let alone in a blazing furnace, right? Like There was no effects, no impact. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, this is key, and we're going to get some implication. He said, praise be to the God of these three guys. Of these three guys. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him. They defied the king's commands. That's me. And they were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore... So, so, so what's Nebuchadnezzar doing? He's like, I'm so impressed with the power of the God that they're trusting. I'm intrigued. I want to acknowledge. He's their God, but I at least want to acknowledge him. And so Nebuchadnezzar now is acknowledging him. He's a powerful God. He might come in handy, right? But whereas he might acknowledge the power of their God, he totally missed the heart of their God, didn't he? 
Because look what he does. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble. For no other God can save in this way. He's like, I'm so impressed by the power of that God, I want to be totalitarian in the way that we somehow acknowledge that God. So if you don't acknowledge that God, you got a price to pay. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. And all of a sudden, these three guys are in a place of influence. What a story, right? Can you see the flannel graph? Can you see the little veggie tales, guys? It's way more than a children's story. Way more. It's provocative. It's powerful. It's potent. Because Daniel's three friends, Rack, Shack, and Benny, they somehow live as examples of engaged exiles living in a real tension, in a real Babylon, without conforming to the real culture of that Babylon while influencing it. Here's what we said week one. They were real exiles in a real Babylon, and Babylon all through the Bible is a metaphor or a picture of any culture that dismisses, minimizes, or tries to live independent of God. You and I are exiles of a culture that wants to dismiss God, minimize God, maybe live independent of God. And these guys serve as examples. How? Three implications. Three implications. I just want to make note of them. And I want you to listen closely. I think these are powerful. First is this. These guys would not bow. They, they wouldn't bow. That's evident in the story, right? They wouldn't bow. They could have rationalized away bowing, by the way. C could you see it? They could have. King Nebi, <laughs> he never once asked them to denounce their God. Never once did he say, hey, denounce your God. And so they could have justified bowing. They said, well, can't we be devoted to our God and bow to this? Uh, they could have rationalized the way, yeah, the king's been so good to us, we don't want to compromise our influence. We got these positions of influence. And so in order for the greater good, we'll compromise this lesser moment. Uh, they could have said, oh, I'll bow on the outside, but on the inside I won't. They could have said, well, God will certainly forgive us, won't he? Nobody's perfect. Like they could have rationalized, they could have justified, but these three guys knew that bowing is the very same thing that got Israel in trouble in the first place. And they remembered what God said in Exodus chapter 20. He said, you shall have no other gods before me. I don't want you to make any image in the form of anything. In heaven above or the earth beneath or the waters below, you shall not bow down to them or worship them. What's the point? Here's the point. I want you to write this down somewhere and I want to tease it out. The point is this, when you and I pledge our supreme allegiance to anything, anything, anyone, anything but God, it is idolatry. Like We don't think about idolatry much in our culture. A bunch of idols sitting around. But what the story helps me know is when I pledge my supreme allegiance to anything but God, it's idolatry. Let's just be honest. Misplaced loyalty can be easy to explain away. It can be easy to be quick and to justify compromising, right? It's easy to bow to some sort of modern-day idol and then 
excuse it, right? Begs the question, how? More specifically, stay with me. It begs this question, more specifically, in this story. Because to understand what this story is trying to tell you and I, there's something provocative in here. There is a potent lesson in here, and it all revolves around this image. We have to dig into this image a little bit. You see, when you dig into the image, you're like, what in the world was that image representing? And I want to give you two suggestions that most scholars land in one of these two places. First is this. A lot of scholars would say this, that the image Nebuchadnezzar set up was a symbol of nationalism. That somehow it, was, it represented a form of allegiance to the Babylonian way, to the Babylonian dream, to the Babylonian prosperity. That when Nebuchadnezzar questions Rakshak and Benny, and he says, hey, is it true that you won't serve my gods and then the word or worship the image? It's like combining these words in a way, that word or is combining them in a way that it reflects that the worship of our gods is interwoven with this Babylonian way. And so therefore, the gods somehow serve to propel the Babylonian way. Because the Babylonian way is the ultimate way. The Babylonian dream is the ultimate dream. The Babylonian values are the ultimate values. The, the ultimate reward of the gods is Babylonian prosperity. And so, for, so, so in their mind, ultimate leadership is the Babylonian leader who's going to lead us in the Babylonian way, which ultimately those gods would serve. Listen. Honestly, isn't it true that the same temptation can face us in 21st century American Christianity? This is what uh, we would call nationalism. Nationalism, it can be easy to bow to some form of religious nationalism. Nationalism is not patriotism. Patriotism, many of you are patriotic and that's fine. You, we love living in this country. We love the freedom we have in this country. Nationalism is not patriotism. You say, what is nationalism? Well, here's what one author says about nationalism. Nationalism is mixing politics and religion in a way that the kingdom of God is swapped out for the American way or dream. Jesus as the king is swapped out for your political party or leader who will lead me there, and it's importing religious zeal into a party or a candidate. Here's how that plays out. The American way and values automatically become synonymous in nationalism with the kingdom of God and the kingdom of God's values in the way of Jesus. And in nationalism, the view is this, is that God basically serves to somehow propel the American dream to preserve American values in the American way. Let me say it this way. We have wonderful sim symbols of patriotism. We love the symbols of patriotism, right? These are endearing. We love them, right? We, they represent things in our history. And yet the truth is, those very same symbols that are endearing of patriotism can easily become idols of nationalism, right? And all of a sudden, we begin to see 
when it becomes an idol of nationalism, when every four years, every four years, right, we bow the knee to nationalism, and it becomes apparent because here's how it becomes apparent. You're like, how do you know? What well, you begin to know that you're bowing the knee to nationalism when every four years we begin to lose hope because we're afraid. And so what we do is we lose hope because we've put our hope in a party or a platform that for us is going to accomplish the American way, the American dream. And we recognize the party's leader as some sort of messianic figure that's going to lead us there. <laughs> and every four years, we have week-long worship services called conventions <laughs> where we laud that messianic leader, so to speak. We set the candidate up as the ultimate leader who's ultimately going to save us and take us to the ideal. For many, and some of you, this whole process, which happens every four years, creates fear. And I want to say this with tenderness because it's an important process. And my hope is, is that you'll vote this week and that you'll prayerfully and responsibly vote as somebody who has the privilege to live in this country. But for many, this becomes a whole process of fear. And the truth is this, is that whatever it is that we fear losing might represent what it is that we've bowed to. David Jeremiah says this at a time like this. A friend named Ron gave me a book I read this week. He said, Christians should be the calmest people on the earth. We have no right to run around the world in frenzied activity, staying up and walking the floor at night, wondering what's going to happen. God in heaven is in control. I love that. You know, many scholars said that it was a symbol of nationalism, but you know, there equally are many scholars who would say this, and I think this is fascinating, that, that no, it wasn't a symbol of nationalism as much as it was a symbol of religious pluralism. And, and so when Nebuchadnezzar said, you won't serve my gods or the image, he was saying they're one and the same. And the image could have been a symbol of Babylonian pride, but it, it, in, in religious pluralism, it represents the fact that Babylon had many gods. Now, this is interesting of which at this point in the story, the Hebrew God would have been represented, the God of the Bible. You remember Daniel chapter two? Like Nebuchadnezzar is kind of, this is interesting. And so the image might have been something that represented the many gods of Babylon. Maybe even the Hebrew God would have been the preferred God. This is religious pluralism. Here's what religious pluralism is. Somebody like, I've never heard that term. Religious pluralism doesn't necessarily mean that God is bad but that God is an option among many options. That's religious pluralism. We live in a society marked by religious pluralism. That's not news, nor is it necessarily the point. But in religious pluralism, listen close, I don't want to lose you. Here's what the overarching value is. The overarching value or the theological value in religious pluralism is this, tolerance. I got to bow to tolerance. This is what puts many Christ followers at tension with the culture and the culture at tension with many Christ followers. Religious pluralism would say that all religions are equally valid and true and should be acknowledged as such. And anything or anybody who may say otherwise is deemed guilty of overriding the theological value of tolerance. 
They're guilty of not bowing to the idol of tolerance. This theological value has symbols as well in our society, right? Maybe you've seen one. Maybe you follow one in the car this week. I don't know. It's many bumper stickers. In a religiously pluralistic society, Christ follower who believes, if you're a Christ follower and you believe in the God of the Bible and that you, if you believe that he is the only, the one and only true God and that Jesus is the only way to have a reconciled relationship with that God, in a religiously pluralistic society, that can be viewed as a threat and it can be viewed as intolerant. It's not okay in a religiously pluralistic society to say that you have the only right way. It's not okay for you as a Christ follower to try to convert people. But if you guys think about this critically, that very sentiment breaks the overlying tenet of tolerance. Because when I look at somebody and say, it's not okay for you to believe that the God of the Bible is the only true God. It's not okay for you to convert people or to tell people that Jesus is the only way to be reconciled to that God. I, in saying that, am breaking the very tenet of tolerance and I'm trying to convert you to my way of thinking. You see, <clears throat> that helps us understand our culture. Culture fears, now stay with me, this is going to bring you somewhere to Daniel 3. Culture fears that those Christians who believe that, not if, if you're a Christ follower, that God is the only true God, Jesus is the only way to be reconciled with God. Here's what culture fears, that if you truly believe that, you'll become totalitarian in your belief. That's what culture fears. You're saying, Dan, what does that mean? Culture fears that you're going to demand everybody believes that. You're going to try to legislate that. And you're going to judge, ostracize, and become arrogant in your belief of that. Can we just admit something? That if that's what our culture fears, they have a lot of examples. Can we, can we just admit that? And the truth is, that kind of spirit or attitude doesn't look anything like these three Hebrew guys. It looks more like who? Nebuchadnezzar. Why? Because Nebuchadnezzar didn't personalize God. He acknowledged the power of their God. And he saw the power of their God as something that could serve what he ultimately wanted. He was intrigued with what that kind of power could do for him. And you know what it made him do? He legislated. If you don't believe that, God, then you're ostracized. You're going to be punished. See how that works? On the other hand, these three Hebrew guys, they didn't focus on forming a march, a protest. They didn't denounce. They didn't try to dismantle the idol. And they didn't even disrespect Nebuchadnezzar. You see it in the story. They were even respectful to him. Instead, you know what they did? They joined in the art of a non-anxious, quiet form of non-participation. The truth is, the way you and I respond in a culture that doesn't always share our beliefs 
will show whether or not we've personalized a relationship with God or if God is simply a good idea and we're intrigued with what his power can do for us. The true follower of Jesus embraces the story of a God who died for people who opposed him. He didn't fight them. You see, the story of Shaq, Rack, and Benny show me something, and I just want to word it this way, that you and I can be different without being a jerk. I, I love that. Like, like, we can be different without being, being offensive and defensive. I think many times the church has gotten preoccupied with dismantling cultural idols, fighting cultural wars, and the church has become so defensive, it's become offensive in our approach to culture. And you say, well, why would that be? I think many times the reason we become defensive and then offensive in the way we dialogue with our culture is because many times we're afraid, you ready? We're afraid, stay with me, because we're afraid to go through the fire. And yet, Daniel chapter three tells us something fascinating. And here's what it teaches, that how you and I walk through the fire will reveal what we really believe about God. How you and I walk through the fire will reveal what you and I really believe about God. First Peter, we studied this a few weeks ago. It kind of is a partner to Daniel. You gotta read them together, right? Daniel's the story of the principles found in First Peter. It's fascinating. Verse six, chapter one says, "'In this you greatly rejoice, "'though now for a little while "'you may have had to suffer grief "'and all kinds of trials. "'They've come so that the proven genuineness of your faith "'of greater worth than gold, "'which perishes even though refined by what? "'Fire. "'May result in praise, glory, and honor "'when Jesus Christ is revealed. "'Though you've not seen him, you love him. "'And even though you don't see him now, "'you believe in him and are filled with inexpressible "'and glorious joy.'" for you're receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. How you and I go through the fire reveals what we really believe about God. There's three questions underneath that I want you to write down, and then we're done. I gotta ask myself, do I trust God in the face of my fire? I just wanna clear something out. The Bible is clear that you and I will go through fire. Here's what I mean. The, the Bible says that you and I will face fire of some sort pain, suffering, opposition, trial, whatever it is. I'm not surprised by the fire, but I wanna state something to you and I want you to listen to how I state this. Your theology or what you believe about God needs to determine how you face your fire. Don't wait till you're in your fire to develop your theology. Parents, don't wait for your kids to be in the fire of the university classroom where everything's being questioned to help them develop their theology and what they believe about God. Don't wait until you're in the ethical, the, the fire of the ethical decision you gotta make to say, I'm gonna develop my theology. Don't wait till you're in the moral conundrum to say, now I'm gonna develop my theology. Don't wait until you're in the fire of pain and suffering to develop your theology. Develop your theology so that you can face your fire. That's what Rock, Shack and Benny teach us. Nebuchadnezzar saying, the fire 
and they look at him and what they say drips, drips with this powerful belief in a God that they said he can, he can, he can save us. He's sovereign. That's their theology. He will. He's loving. He'll, he'll, he'll rescue us from your hand, Nebuchadnezzar. One way or another, he loves us. And even if he doesn't rescue us from this fire, we know this, that he knows way more than us. And his plan, he is such a good God that his plan, if that's what happens, was gooder than we, we knew. <laughs> you see, I gotta ask myself, do I trust him as I face my fire? Have I developed my theology so that I can face my fire? Which leads to the second question. And I think the second question I need to ask is, can anyone see Jesus in the middle of my fire? I'm fascinated with that. Nebi looks in and he sees, I love this, he sees a son of the gods. That's what he says. You remember, he's a pluralist, right? They got many gods. But what he didn't realize was that what was he seeing? Not a son of the gods, but here's what he was seeing. He was seeing the son of the God. This is a, a picture, Old Testament picture of the pre-incarnate. That means before Bethlehem, Jesus. I'll tell you something, the fire of opposition, the fire of nonconformity, the fire of being in the minority in your high school and university, the fire of suffering, the fire of pain, whatever other fires you may face qualifies as a fire that pushes me, has the option to push me deeper into Jesus. And here's what I know. In the middle of that fire, that fire is either going to burn me up or Jesus is going to show up in my life. And the important thing in the middle of the fire isn't that people agree with me, vote the way I do. What's important is they see Jesus. I have no idea what you're facing personally. I have no idea what we're going to face as a country, as a world. I have no idea. But in the middle of the fire, here's what's important. I got to ask myself, do they see Jesus? Or do they just see the fire of my opinions? See, in the fire, all those things begin to burn up. I gotta ask, is Jesus gonna show up? Actually, it's the last question. Does God get the glory as I leave my fire? These guys come out, and, and I love this. They don't look at Nebby and say, told you so. There's no egotistical like, told you so, Nebby. I told you throw us in there, we'd be all right. And do that. Why? Because they knew that the way they came out of the fire was something they wanted to reflect and give glory to God so that their influence could be used for a greater glory, not their own. It reminds me of something Peter says. First Peter 3, even if you should suffer for doing what's right, Rakshak and Benny did, you're blessed. Don't fear their threats. Don't be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it's better if it's God's will to suffer for doing good than doing evil. You see, does God get the glory as I come out of my fire? 
can, can we just acknowledge this? This is not a, simply a children's story. Can we just acknowledge that? Can I ask you a couple questions? Just a couple questions to end. Who or what has your supreme allegiance? This is an important week, and I hope you'll go vote. And I hope you'll prayerfully vote. And I hope you'll ask God to guide your vote. But can I ask you this? Are you afraid of this week's election? Because I would simply suggest this. If you are, maybe whatever you're afraid of losing will begin to reveal to you what it is that has your supreme allegiance. You see, anything that has my supreme allegiance apart from God is a form of idolatry. Can I ask you this? Are you an engaged exile who's different without being a jerk? <laughs> Do you relate with God more like Nebuchadnezzar? Like you kind of are intrigued by the power of God and what he can do for you? Or have you developed a theology that knows that there is a God who loves you and that you're going to trust him because he knows more than you? And so therefore I can... I can engage in a culture that many times doesn't share my values with a non-anxious presence. With this, with this way that I can go through culture, don't need to be offensive because I don't need to always be defensive. Is your faith ready to face your fire? Because Walking through the fire will reveal what you really believe about God. And for the follower of Jesus, that means this. This story points to a bigger story. Did you know that? That we have a God who exiled himself from heaven to earth. His name is Jesus. Those who opposed him, they arrested him. They tried him. They falsely accused him. They spit on him. They, they literally whipped him. They, they shoved a crown of thorns on him. They mocked him. He met their assaults with a non-anxious presence, a quiet and non-anxious spirit that had a purpose because he wanted to engage. His purpose, you know what it was? It was the cross. Because at the cross, he faced the ultimate fire for you and for me. It was the fire of the penalty and punishment for all of our sin. Three days later, he came out of that fire. Did you know that? He came out of that fire, and you know what that means? That means this, that the one who faced the ultimate fire for you is the one who is with you in the fire that you're facing. So God, I thank you for a story that is not just a children's story. And God, my prayer is this, is that you would use this story to somehow point us to the grander story. I'm so grateful that you faced the ultimate fire for us. And so God, you have, you have literally rescued us from the ultimate fire of the penalty of our sin. And so God, as we follow you, we want you to have supreme allegiance and devotion and loyalty. We will not fear. And God, in a culture that doesn't share our values, we're going to trust you. We're going to point to you. 
because we believe that you love us, that you are sovereign and in control. This week, we claim that, believe that, know that, and that you're a good God. And my prayer is this, is that when and if, and maybe some are right now in the middle of our fire, that Jesus would show up. And our culture would see the only one, the only one, the absolute only one who can save them. I pray this in his name. Amen.